0: If you are receiving this transmission, you are Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Network.
1: Welcome to episode one of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall and Omega Frequency with BDK. And now, your new network co-host, Phil Baker. (laughs) What up, Phil? Hey, Justin. Thanks so much for
1: letting me become a part of The Fourth Watch, man. This is a great, great opportunity. Thank you so
0: much. Oh, you're welcome, bro. But you know what? Like, we didn't even tell people like all the details. So wow, you just kind of let the cat out of the bag. And BDK, you just sat there and let it happen.
2: <laughs> oh man.
3: <laughs> I was like a drive-by. I was like, I, the bullets were flying. I just ducked for cover, yo.
0: <laughs> Dude, it's like a drive-by true thing. Where you like, you drive by and you like. <laughs> start like yelling scripture at people. I love that. That's like the best. <laughs> no, no. So yeah, th- this is a really big day. Um, man, this is crazy. Cause we're actually going to make some, some big announcements today on your show, Phil. This is actually Phil's show. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is Phil's show. This is the, this is literally, you're listening to the first official episode of Phil Baker's podcast on the fourth watch radio network. Uh, this is a special edition episode, and, and Phil's going to be able to tell you a little bit more about, about his ministry and what his vision is and his calling for this podcast. Uh, we're going to get into that in just a few minutes, but I just want to say we're going to be making some big announcements tonight. This this is really cool. Um, So B, uh, BDK and I, many of you know, we BDK and I, we've been, goodness, we've been friends for a long time and brothers and just, you know, diving into ministry together. And then this guy, Phil, starts showing up on BDK's podcast. I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> I'm like, who is this guy? You know, and then and I'm like, yeah, I really like this guy. Like, man, he has so much good to say. And um, I just, I felt like I'm listening to another brother, and, and I was. I mean, literally, you know, no pun intended. I, I was literally listening to a brother in Christ um, who was cut from the same cloth as BDK and I, and just a, a young man, young man of God that's on fire that that takes the word of God seriously. That you know, uh, that's what's so awesome about being with you guys is that we take the word of God seriously and not one of us is perfect and we all make mistakes, but through our mistakes and our trials and and our learning experiences and everything that we go through, we go back to the word of God as our foundation, no matter what's going on, that's our foundation. And we always return to see what the Lord has to say about things. And so I I love that about you guys. And you know, then I find out that you're doing a podcast and I'm like, wow, Phil's doing a podcast really, like, maybe I should hear this first before I talk to him. <laughs> no, but seriously, man, I heard your I heard your first episode and I instantly called BDK and I was like, dude, I really I, I, I want to have him on the network. Um, I want to offer it to him. And BDK felt the same way. And so we, you know, we wanted to talk to you, Phil, and, and that's pretty much uh, what happened. And so uh, this is we've decided to take your first three episodes and then stitch them together so that it's a it's a it's a. Full fourth watch episode, basically, and we're gonna play that here um, after we have some conversation. But uh, this is a very special day for us on the fourth watch. Um, I have a big announcement to make later. But Phil, tell us about reclaiming the faith. Let everybody know exactly, you know, what 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 is this vision for this podcast that you have, and what you plan to do through this. Yeah, so the
1: mission of reclaiming the faith is to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. So basically to give you a, the basic premise for the show, like kind of imagine sitting in a coffee house or on the on the front porch with some friends and you you're talking about court, current events or uh, maybe you're having a Bible study and then like maybe somebody like Polycarp showed up. Somehow you know he was a personal disciple of the Apostle John, and he, he started joining in on the conversation so like how would he respond to this? What advice would he give? what kind of insight could he offer uh, about how the apostles approach the same core issues um, what kind of, what could he tell us about the way Christians in his day face these similar situations i I really got into the early Christian writings. Um after I had been through Bible college and, and I was actually in seminary at the time and I really had not been uh, exposed to those earliest Christian writings, I had been taught that um, you know, there were many heresies uh, in the church uh, with Gnosticism and, and learned a lot about those kind of heretical movements, but we didn't get exposed to what the earliest Christians stood for. And we were basically taught that Orthodox Christianity began in the 5th century with the writings of St. Augustine. And uh, so it was really eye-opening to me when I began to read the earliest Christian writings and saw how simply and seriously these earliest Christians took took the Bible, uh, particularly the words of Jesus and the writings of the apostles and how they lived those scriptures out so, so fervently in the midst of all kinds of uh, persecution. And I wanted that, too. I wanted to approach the scriptures that simply, too, because I, I began to to see that even though I believed the Bible, I didn't believe it like I thought I believed it. Even though I thought that t- I took the Bible seriously, I didn't take it as seriously as they did. And it really sparked a a fire in me, a, a burning desire to um, get back to the scriptures, to reading it uh, much more simply and, and living it out in a much more simple way uh way. And uh just it, it it produced a very um profound change in my in my spiritual worldview and my approach toward daily living. And um it's just been great uh these last several years uh seeing how that's that's had a big impact on me and uh some of the people that I've I've been sharing these things with and uh yeah it's been really cool getting to have a lot of discussions with BDK uh on his program Omega Frequency and and getting to share on uh Ready with an Answer that's been great and you know getting to listen to the Fourth Watch and we got to co-host uh an episode on the Fourth Watch a couple of months ago so that was really cool and I've been blessed by a lot of uh so many of your episodes Justin and uh so I'm just really looking forward to this great opportunity to uh, keep podcasting, keep bringing this message to to the people, because I'm not in it for the money. I'm just in it for the message, uh, to get this message of the kingdom of God, um, the good news of Jesus Christ out to as many people as possible. So this is just such a blessing to me. Thank you so much.
0: Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Uh, I just want to make a statement about something you said about the early church fathers, Um it seems to me that everybody wants to make memes on Facebook. It, you know, it's really ridiculous when you live in a, in a time where people get more doctrine from memes than they do from their Bible, or they do from history books, or they do from you know, it, it's like meme everywhere you look, and people are running around quoting memes, and it, it just it, it's really sad. You know, people are, are saying that this man stood for this, that man stood for that, and then you go and you do your homework, and you find out that the guy had nothing to do with what the meme says. Um, And I'm I'm not going to drop names or anything. I'm just saying in general, I've seen this type of behavior. I've seen people claiming Martin Luther, this, that or the other, and there was no truth to what they had in the meme. But I think it's really great for you to go back and and hash through the teachings of the early church fathers. There's so much uh, that we can learn as a modern church. There's so much we can learn about the early church, and that really causes us to see how far we've gotten from the truth. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that to be hateful towards anybody, but I mean for me personally, when I read the book of Acts, and, and I'm actually going through a study in Acts right now, but every time I read the book of Acts, I just get so convicted. I'm like, why aren't we seeing – why, why doesn't the church look like this? Why don't I look like this? How come I'm not living the way that these men lived? You know, Our church does not look anything like the church in the early days. And uh, it's very convicting. It's very important that we that we do go back and see how the church operated when it got started, and then how, how the early church kind of progressed. So anyway, I, I think it's a great area to be to be researching and to be teaching on. And uh, man, I uh, I just I really enjoyed what you've done, man. It's it's such a blessing, and uh, it's it's just you balance it out really well.
3: I want to interject a question though, for clarification's sake, if I can. Because like one of the knocks that you get when you study the Church Fathers or ancient church history is there will always be people who don't like what what these guys are saying and they dismiss everything offhand because they're like, Well, that's all Catholic and that's all Catholic influence and all these people like they're under the influence of Rome and whatnot. And so they you know, they'll cherry pick what they want to listen to from the church fathers. And Phil actually has, like, a pretty good rule about what sources he draws from church history. Would you like to share with the listeners kind of what eras you draw your church history from and your church father's writings from and how you kind of weigh through all the Catholicism um, stuff?
1: The the sources that I'm looking at are pre-Constantinian. And so, like, the proper, the proper wordage or verbiage would be anti-Nicene, so before nicaea the council of nicaea and so like the latest the latest guy you're gonna you're gonna find me quoting is lactantius which uh would go all the way up to 313 actually and that's at like the edict of milan right there and so like these guys are not influenced by constantine these guys are certainly not influenced by any kind of pope because popes didn't exist back then um they just weren't. The early Christians were not ruled by a singular pope. And you know BDK and I have talked about that quite a bit uh, in different discussions on uh, Ready With an Answer episodes. Uh, you can see bishops of Rome calling other bishops of Rome heretics. Hippolytus calls uh, two previous bishops of Rome – Hippolytus was a bishop of Rome – uh, around uh, the beginning of the second or beginning of the third century and he calls two previous bishop, bishops of rome heretics so you know they they didn't have some high and lofty view of uh, the bishop of rome that we did uh or that that many people do today um like they would view pope francis as a pope that 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 wasn't the case back then and so uh yeah, um th- there wasn't like a Catholic influence back then um in the area that I'm citing and, and really what we try to do mostly is is look at uh particularly if you can find the um the people who are personal disciples of the apostles, that's that's preferable. So you have someone like Polycarp who was the disciple of the Apostle John, or you can look at the chain of custody that goes from him, like Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus who was the bishop of Lyon. And Irenaeus had a disciple named Hippolytus, who was the bishop of um was the bishop of Rome. And uh so like you can see this chain of custody that went on and you can see that uh, you know, these guys kept the same kinds of uh beliefs all through the years, and that's pretty spectacular. And then some other things that you can really um, hold firm to and, and find a lot of uh, solid ground and solid footing with is when uh the early Christian teachers all over the world who did not have a singular ruler governing them were all interpreting certain passages and certain doctrines the same way and that that 's really that 's really critical those are really critical area, uh, areas um, in 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 uh, the cases of certain ethics and uh, certain um, very important doctrines of our faith um that that maybe today uh might be looked at as heretical uh back then uh were looked at as orthodox which is really interesting like the doctrine of like uh for, for some calvinists would think that some people are born damned uh by god um the early christians did not teach that. You find that teaching with the Gnostics, though, and that's the kind of stuff you you find in in these early Christian writings that you won't you don't really get taught in um, in seminary very often.
0: Sorry to just kind what, of drop some bombshells. Uh, no, what did you what was his name? Lactantius? Lactantius.
1: That he was a uh, he was a um, I can't remember where he was actually. I, I apologize for that. But he was he was a major teacher uh, around the beginning of the fourth century. Right in that Man. last uh, Christian persecution, I think it's the Valerian persecution. He he was a big shot back then.
0: Man, like that name is just—it sounds—it's—it's it's fun to say. Like if it doesn't—if it, if it doesn't feel good to say, like Tantius, um, and, and for the record. At the fourth watch, we are not l- lactantious intolerant. Okay, <laughs> okay I'm yeah. sorry. I should be making jokes about this. I'm sorry, guys. I just I, I felt kind of you know it was just so fun. I wanted to say it a couple times, you know, just to get it out. Just yeah, man. It's like a dumb and dumber <laughs> moment. I just want to get it out of my system, you know, before I get hurt. <laughs> Cast it out, man. Man, BDK, you want to say it a couple times? You That's don't know for what the you're soul, missing, BDK.
4: Oh, oh,
0: lactantius,
3: Lactantious.
0: Good job. (laughs) Now, if you could say it three times really fast. What is this? Beetle juice? Dude, (laughs) (laughs) this is like a late night show and I'm just having, I'm sorry. I get a little like this after hours. I mean, but now Phil, moving into a different direction. uh, You're out there in in the Houston area and um, you know, there's a lot of people right now. They're just devastated, just devastated by Harvey. Um, you were not hit directly, like your, your house was not destroyed, um, but your parents, they, they suffered some damage. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in your area, just to kind of update the Fourth Watch audience, because you know as of now, we have not addressed the Harvey situation and how better to do it than to talk to somebody that's right out there in the middle of it. So tell us a little bit about what's going on and uh, just kind of fill us in.
1: Yeah, so it's the worst flood the city has ever had. Um, it's just devastation all around. Um, but, you know, we're seeing uh, we're seeing God's people step up in some really remarkable ways. Um, you know, Houston is the most diverse city in the United States. And so so many people that would never get um, impacted by the gospel are just having the gospel almost shoved down their throats because the church is out in force, bringing food, doing labor. Uh, helping to gut people's houses just showing up and seeing people in need and just can we help you and, and going out and doing that all around the communities uh here in town and it's just been incredible you're hearing story after story after story of the church doing incredible work and people um just being brought to tears sometimes and reconciliation happening it's just great great stuff uh, going on in Houston in the midst of this tragedy. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, it's terrible devastation uh, like we have never seen before, but like I said, God is, is in the midst of, of this tragedy and he's doing a great work of restoration.
0: Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm beside myself because it's like, you've got Harvey that just tore up Texas and now we've got this, this, is it Irma? Yep. Uh, Am I saying that right? Irma, Irma? I don't know. I'm not I don't know how they're saying it, but I don't I don't have cable TV, so I don't get to watch the news. I'm just happy to know Jesus, man. That's that's all I can say. We are living in some times where there's false doctrine everywhere, cults everywhere, false churches, just political just deception everywhere we look. It's like the the one thing that we have that is absolute is the word of God and the promises in the word of God. Like that's what we have. That's the absolute. And, and, you know, I feel very sorry for anybody listening who does not have an absolute in their life. You know, nothing in this life is guaranteed except for the word of God and what it holds. Everything else, people are going to fail you. Your jobs are going to fail you, your friends, your family. We're going to let you down. I'm going to let you down at some point. But the word of God, that's the absolute that we have. And so our comfort and our joy comes from Jesus Christ. And so when, when, when these things come about, when these storms come and, uh, not just these physical storms, but even the metaphoric storms that come into our lives, you know, I'm reminded that, that casting crown song, I'll praise you in the storm. You guys remember that one? Sure. You know, and it's like, I used to listen to that and like cry, like tears of just like, like tears would come down my face because like I have to like ask myself, do I really praise God when there's storms in my life or am I like running around worrying about everything? It's been a while since I've heard it, but I I remember those days. I remember when the album first came out, but you know, we have the absolute of the word of God. It's 100% absolute. The word of God will never let you down if you're living it, you know? So I I just, I'm praying for everything, man. I don't know what's going on. It's kind of ironic that the the, the September 23rd crowd is probably going to have something to say about Irma coming through. (laughs) I'm just saying, dude, it's, it's like, there's no telling where people are going to take this and run with it. But, um, man, It's just crazy times, dude. And that's why it's so important that we are proclaiming the truth in these, in these strange times. And, uh, and I know we, we got to get into, uh, into your podcast. Um, I just want to make a quick announcement and this is wild. I didn't know I was going to make this announcement on your podcast, but, um, my brother, Wes and myself, uh, we are going to be moving to skywatch, uh, coming up in, uh, mid to late October. I don't have the exact date that we're going to start broadcasting But uh, we're going to be moving over there, uh, literally moving Fall Brothers Productions and Fourth Watch Films over to Skywatch Studios. And uh, we're going to be working with Tom Horn and the crew over there. And we're going to be writing and producing films through Skywatch. Still going to be Fourth Watch Films, Fall Brothers Productions, but we're going to be in in association with Skywatch. And we're going to be putting out uh, a new film every year, you know, as long as the Lord allows. So we're really excited about that. And I want to give that kind of put that out there. And that's another reason why I'm not going to be jumping back onto normal broadcast schedule every week uh, immediately because I've got a lot on my plate right now. Um, We're working on getting things, more things packed up and and we're looking for a house, looking for a place to live and just a a lot of things we have to get dealt with uh, in the next month. So it's it's kind of a hectic time over here at the Fall Brothers house, but uh, God is good and he's opening up really awesome doors of opportunity for us. And uh, we're really excited. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there as an announcement on on your program, because I believe this program. um, I think this program is going to air. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if I'm. by the time this airs, I don't even know if I will have said it or not. But anyway, it's official. I just want to get that out there. (laughs) (laughs) And it's after midnight and I'm babbling. So BDK, help me here. Help me. I'm starting to feel like I'm drowning. I need somebody to pull me up.
3: I don't know, man. We're living in some crazy times, dude. I mean, like, it's really strange to think that a couple weeks ago, it seemed like we were pretty much turning the corner on an unavoidable race war. Everybody was at each other's throat. Everybody hated everybody. Everybody was locking and loading for some sort of, like, racial Armageddon. And then these storms roll through, and man, like, Talk about a a lesson in redemption, dude. It's like the brakes kind of got thrown on the bus a little bit. Like, we kind of took a step back. We breathed a little bit, man. A lot of people came together. A lot of racial people crossed those lines. Denominations crossed lines to help people out. It's like the body of Christ is at its best when we're trying to help one another, when we're trying to serve each other instead of trying to build our own kingdom, man. And, man... Like, it is strange times. And what makes these days even stranger is that, you know, we look at the future and it seems uncertain and it seems like, you know, what's the next round of things that's going to happen? North Korea, you know, is threatening to, you know, basically nuke us. Like, Fox News had a thing on tonight that said, like, it would only take 30 minutes for their missiles to hit Chicago. So it's like... Now people are starting to fear-monger again, and it's it's so pointless because we do have a sure foundation, like Justin was saying. We have the truth of God's Word. It's just we need to return back to it, and we need to simply live it again. We need to simply do the things that Christ tells us to do. That's how we show that we love Him. And that's why it's important that this show is on the 4th Watch Radio Network because you're going to get to hear things. I guarantee you're not going to get to hear in your church, because most people aren't going to quote to you, um, Hippolytus. They're not going to quote to you, Irenaeus. They're not going to quote to you some of these church fathers. They're not going to say, you know what, this is what Jesus taught. This is what his disciples taught. And this is what the disciples of the disciples taught. And it was all pretty uniform. And a lot of times it's way different than what we're teaching. And we need to, we need to wrestle with that. We need to ask ourselves why we need to ask ourselves why these things have changed. Because if we're changing all of these things, man, then we're just as crazy as the uncertain times that are surrounding us. Because we're we're giving up the one thing that should be there. It's like that parable of Jesus, right? It's like you have the house that's built on the rock, the sure foundation. And then the winds and the waves and the rain comes, and that house stands. But the ones that are built on shifting sands, the ones that are built on shadows, the ones that are built on things that change. From time to time, our own doctrines, our own personal ambitions. When the storms of life come, it just kind of erodes and it wipes it all away, man. So I think it's really cool, Justin, that you're, you've are you extended this opportunity to Phil. I can't wait for the listeners to be able to see Phil's podcast show up in their feed so that it's really easy to find it. I mean, that's like the beauty of the Fourth Watch Network. It's like you're starting to, like, gain this family of people and you're putting everything on one feed. And now people can be like, Oh, I like this. I like this. I like this. And they don't have to search for it. They don't have to cut through all the signal, the noise they can just find it really simply, really easily. So keep doing what you're doing, bro. And keep bringing truth, man.
0: Amen. Amen. It's a, it's a, it's just an honor and a blessing, man, um, to have both of you guys on, on the fourth watch network. Um, that's all I can say. And, uh, I mean, I know it's after midnight and I'm probably just like rambling on about things at this point, but I I just, I want y'all to know that I'm excited and I'm blessed. And, um, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to minister side by side with you guys and provide end times Christian content. And, uh, man, I guess, uh, on that note, let's go ahead and head on over to those interviews. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to reclaiming the faith on the fourth watch radio network.
1: Have you ever had your worldview turned upside down? It's a bit unsettling, isn't it? Well, when I arrived in Swaziland, Africa in 2004 on a month-long mission trip, one of the local men who was part of the mission I was entering took my bag with one hand, he grabbed my hand with the other, and started walking me down the road where we would be staying. We were walking about a quarter of a mile holding hands and talking like an old married couple. And uh, honestly, I was a bit creeped out. But his actions were totally normal for a Saswati in in Swaziland. And in fact, the man was being very welcoming and hospitable, kind of treating me like family or a close friend. And, you know, that took a while for, for me to get adjusted to that culture because something that I used to feel was wrong was now viewed as pure. Well, similarly, when we become born again into Jesus' kingdom, it can also feel like He is turning our worldview upside down. However, it's crucial to know that we all enter life with an inverted perspective of reality. And so Jesus is actually helping to set everything right side up again. Most of us were born into a democracy and a democracy is extremely different than a kingdom in a democracy. If we don't like our leaders, we can vote them out of office if we don't like our laws, we can vote in different laws. In a democracy, the majority usually gets its way. If you're like me, you were born again into the kingdom of God with a democratic mindset. And if that's the case, then like me, you have been pouring new wine into old wineskins See, because you entered into this kingdom acting like a democracy, like it's democratic. And that's just not the case. We entered into a kingdom, and so we have to treat it like a kingdom. See, all kingdoms have a king. They have a domain. They have laws. They have values and subjects. And the kingdom of God is no different. And yet, because it's from heaven, it is completely different than all the kingdoms of the earth. The kingdom of God has no earthly king. Jesus is its king. And he will never stop being king, and no one has the right to change his laws. The kingdom of God has no geographic borders. It exists through whomever Jesus' spirit has free reign. Excluding the realm of heaven or his eventual millennial uh, earthly reign, this is King Jesus' domain. Therefore, it's important for us to remember that no one is truly born into the kingdom of God through their parents. right? King Jesus himself said in John chapter 3 verse 3, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. So how does this work? Well, how does somebody get born again? Jesus gave his entire life for us. And if we repent of our sins, of being self-focused, of being the ruler of our own life, and we give our entire lives back to him, give our lives over to his rule, to his reign, Ask him to forgive our sins and come to take over our life. Well, he will actually give his life back into us through the Holy Spirit. And he will begin to transform us to become like him. We actually become born from above. We're regenerated. We get a new life. We're born again into his kingdom. We become adopted sons and daughters of the king. And when this happens, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter one, verse thirteen, we also get rescued out of the domain of darkness, Satan's kingdom, and transferred or translated into Jesus' kingdom. Now let's think about the laws. The laws of the kingdom of God are first and foremost the commands of Jesus Christ. Now, many of these are found in King Jesus' inaugural address in Matthew chapter, f- chapters 5 through 7 or Luke chapter 6, which would be uh, the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Now, Jesus' life illustrates the values of the kingdom of God. The way he treated those inside the kingdom, those outside the kingdom, and the things of this world, and the subjects of the kingdom of God, are those who have entered into a covenantal relationship with the King, those who love Him, obey Him, and reflect His nature to the world. This, this is basically the biblical worldview for a Christian. However, over the last 1700 years or so, there has been much debate amongst Christians as to how one should interpret the laws of the kingdom of God. For example, some Christian leaders teach that Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 5 to love our enemies in no way prohibits us from killing our enemies under the right circumstances. And that's basically the culture that I grew up in as a young Texan and a Southern Baptist. Now, I need you to know that I am so grateful. I'm so grateful that I was able to do my undergraduate work at a Baptist university. You know, it was there that I truly developed a love for the scriptures and a passion to impact the world for Christ. And I'm also thankful for being able to graduate from seminary and for the many practical ministerial lessons I learned there. However, however, though I was taught about a few of the major Gnostic heresies during the first 300 years of Christianity, such as Doceticism, Marcionism, Valentinianism, and Manichaeism, uh, we didn't really cover what the beliefs and the values of the early Christians actually were. We, we didn't cover what they actually stood for. In fact, it was basically implied by my professors that real Orthodox Christianity began to take root with the 5th century teachings of St. Augustine, who, interestingly, was spent his early years as a Manichaean a um, before converting to Christianity. So, you know, sure, I heard stories of early Christian martyrdom, but I wasn't actually exposed to their writings until I had been working in full-time ministry for about five years. And uh, a friend of mine encouraged me to read a book that was calling into question the American church's relationship with the state, Uh, kind of making an analogy to um, the way the church merged with the state, uh, particularly after Constantine and with the reign of Emperor Theodosius in 380 uh, AD, uh, merging with Rome there. Now, Reading that book was quite unsettling to say the least. And the first quote that grabbed me was from a man I had heard about, but ne- never read anything from. And this guy was Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. And um, oh my goodness, what a quote it was! What a quote it was. Uh, this is what I read. And uh, it's kind of a fuller version of it as well. uh, um, giving it to you from the uh, CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. This is in volume 1, page 413. This is what Justin writes. It's in a it's an apologetic work. Okay, so he's writing to the Roman emperor, basically, and saying this is what Christians are like. This is what Christianity is like all over the world. So here we go. He says, We... Who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness have each throughout the whole earth changed our warlike weapons, our swords into plowshares and our spears into implements of tillage. And we cultivate piety, righteousness, philanthropy, faith, and hope which we have from the Father himself through him who was crucified. Now, it is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus all over the world, for it is plain that though we're beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts and chains and fire, And all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But in fact, the more such things happen, the more do others and in larger numbers become faithful and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. For just as if one should cut away the fruit bearing parts of a vine, it grows up again and yields other branches flourishing and fruitful, even so... The same thing happens with us. So, uh, did you get what he just said? First of all, all followers of Jesus from the beginning of Christendom to the middle of the second century, uh, around 160, when he wrote, all around the known world believed that the Isaiah prophecy about the kingdom of God was becoming true in them because of Jesus and because of Jesus inside of them and all over. The world, the Christians, viewed non-resistance as a moral imperative in the same light. They were holding in it in the same light, uh, at the same standard, with the same weight that uh, the Christians were told to view the moral commands from Leviticus um, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 about not committing idolatry. Uh, about um, not committing sexual immorality and about not um, not drinking blood, uh, not having any blood um, ingested in them and not eating food or meat that's been strangled. And so they held this issue of nonviolence to that same degree. And, and they viewed nonresistance resistance and persecution as one of the most effective means of evangelism. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? They didn't have the four spiritual laws, right? I mean, they had creeds, to be sure. But they viewed the most effective manner of evangelism as literally dying by the hands of your enemies. Which would turn your enemies into believers when they saw your faithful perseverance and patience in the midst of torture for the name of Christ. And why would they view that that way? Well, you know, that's exactly what happened on the cross with Jesus. Dying for his enemies and turning enemies into brothers and sisters right and you can remember that actually happened right there the centurion overseeing Jesus crucifixion what did he say right as Jesus breathed his last he said surely this man was the son of god right pretty interesting stuff all christians throughout the known world they believed that because of the indwelling of the holy spirit they really could walk as Jesus walked, and love as Jesus loved. They believed that just like Jesus' death brought life to countless people, by picking up their crosses, He, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father would continue to do the same thing through them. So even though they were being crucified, burned alive, fed to wild beasts, burned in oil, ripped limb from limb, they saw that horrific persecution. They saw that horrific persecution as a blessing to the world. Now, why would they take such drastic measures, even in the face of such intense persecution? Well, for one, the early Christians, like I said, they were on a kingdom mission, this evangelism aspect. They're on a kingdom mission. They were not On a mission to retire early. They were on mission to reach the world for Christ. By Christ's means, for Christ's ends. And the second reason they went to such drastic measures to reach people is that the early Christians read the New Testament seriously and simply. Simply. Like an intelligent 12-year-old, they didn't have seminaries and classes devoted to a systematic theology that cleverly justified not walking as Jesus walked. No, if Jesus and the apostles taught it and lived it, so did the early Christians. In fact, you know, let's take a a moment and, and let's look at some of the writings of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. Okay, so let's look a little bit fuller at that Matthew 5:43 through 48 passage. Just think about this simply and seriously. Just like how would an intelligent 12-year-old, what would they believe when they heard this for the first time? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is. Is perfect. And now, Paul in Romans 12, verse 17 through 19, and uh, verse 21, he says, speaking to Christians, you guys never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all. All men, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now let's go to Peter, First Peter Chapter two, verse 21 through 23, he says to Christians, you have been called for this purpose, for this mission, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And finally, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it says, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And you think about verse 6 in chapter 2 that says, We know that we have come to know him, if we walk as Jesus walked. When I read Justin Martyr's testimony for the first time and, you know, I compared his testimony to the simple words of the New Testament, I was, I was stunned. And I felt heartbroken. Like, like I had been lied to and I was living a lie for nearly three decades. It's like my pastors and my professors and is how I felt at the time am um, not saying it's necessarily true, just those feelings, this grief-stricken feeling like my pastors and my professors had been carefully crafting a version of the Bible to teach us that fit a particular agenda rather than simply teaching the scr- scriptures. You know, I was grief stricken and, you know, there are stages to grief and you, you have sadness, this depression, you have anger, you know, you have shock and denial, all these things, all these complex emotions and feelings. I was feeling at the same time too, just trying to make sense of it all. But, you know, regardless of my feelings, here's the important question. Do those words of the early Christians line up with Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, and the lives and the teachings of the apostles? Well, clearly they do, right? Clearly they do. And what is more, uh, the the more I began to study this particular topic, I I soon realized that the issue of non-resistance is one which the early church was completely... United for the first 300 years of Christendom. They were completely united on this subject, despite facing intense persecution like no one in the American church faces. Let me just give you a few of those. Let me just give you three, okay, just for now. Here's Aristides in 125 AD. He says about Christians... They comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Here's Cyprian in 250 AD. He says, Christians do not attack their assailants in return, for it is not lawful for the innocent to kill even the guilty. The hand must not be spotted with the sword and blood not after the eucharist is carried in it notice he said a christian cannot kill if you've just taken the lord's supper here's lactantius in 304 through 313 okay he says religion is to be defended not by putting to death but rather by dying not by cruelty but by patient endurance, not by guilt, but by good faith. For the former belongs to evil, but the latter to good. For if you wish to defend religion by bloodshed, by tortures and guilt, it will no longer be defended. Rather, it will be polluted and profaned. And you know, we, honestly, we, we, we could spend an hour just reading quotes like this, especially like getting the full context of these. And maybe we'll do some of that in a later podcast. Um, It'd be a little bit overwhelming, but um, maybe it's worth it. I don't know. Well, I do know that um, what they are saying, what these early Christians are saying is not usually compatible with what is taught from American pulpits. Um, And like I said, When I read their words, I mean, it really upset me. My world was getting turned upside down. But, you know, looking back, as painful as it was, I believe my world was actually starting to get turned right side up. And I realize it can be scary when our worldviews are shaken, but I want to encourage you today to not be afraid. For God is for you. He's not against you. And God does not give us a spirit of fear. So if you're feeling fear about the, well, like if I try to practice this, what could happen? That fear is not from God. That's not a holy fear. That's not from God. Also know that King Jesus has not come to turn your world upside down, but to turn things right side up again. And remember the encouraging words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-4. through For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. so that's a little peek into uh what began my journey into the early christian writings and we're going to be talking about a lot of different subjects um all, all kinds of biblical subjects uh, in in the upcoming w- uh, weeks and months and hopefully years and as we do um If you're interested in hearing what the early Christians believed about a particular topic that interests you, please send me an email. Um, You can write me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. That's E-M-A-I-L-P-H-I-L-S-B-A-K-E-R, the at sign, G-M-A-I-L dot C-O-M. Okay. Yeah, and I can't promise that I'm going to get right to it because i got a lot of things planned already. But I'll do my best to get to it uh, eventually. And uh, you can dialogue with me also at that email for now. Um, Yeah, so you can check out this podcast. It's on um, um, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. And uh, you can find it on iTunes too. If this has been a blessing to you, Uh, It would really help me out if you would leave a rating and review on iTunes. And I just really want to encourage you to be a mighty warrior for the kingdom of God and fight spiritual battles with the spiritual weapons he gives you. And may you read the scriptures seriously and simply and believe with your whole heart that if Jesus and the apostles taught it and lived it, so can you. And just finally, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.
3: Reclaiming
1: the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us. Today, I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Thanks so much for joining me today on Reclaiming the Faith. In episode three, I'm going to be discussing the subjects of how to hear from God and how to make room for him to speak on both an individual and corporate basis. And like always, I'm going to be doing this from an early Christian perspective, with testimonies from the leaders of our faith during the first three centuries of the church sprinkled in to help frame the conversation. I had originally planned to air a different episode today, an interview that I did with one of my best friends, Tyler Bryan, who is a youth minister in the Pennsylvania area, and the episode is about youth ministry from an early Christian perspective. But considering the dire circumstances that are going on in my town, in my city of Houston, uh, we're you know we're just experiencing this uh, this catastrophic flood, a flood that has never happened in the city's history. Um, it is just it's so bad, y'all. And we need your prayers and your support. So please lift up the city of Houston. It's it's interesting because um, my pastor, he took a sabbatical during the month of June. And when he came back, he said that he was going to start a series, a new series, at the end of the month of August called Shattered Dreams. And you can just tell that my pastor was hearing from God during that that month of prayer intense prayer preparing him to be able to speak to the you know these these shattered dreams that so many people in my community in my city are, are experiencing right now how do we deal with that so i thought it was it was timely it was appropriate to push back that interview about youth ministry and it, instead discuss hearing from god from an early christian perspective And if you're blessed by this episode, please follow me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith, where you can also subscribe for free. And if you have any questions or have an early Christian topic that you'd like for me to cover— Please feel free to contact me on my website or directly at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. That's E M A I L P H I L S B A K E R at gmail.com. Finally, last year, I wrote a book about this journey Jesus and the early Christians have taken me on. It's called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. You can purchase it on Amazon, and again, if it's a blessing to you, please leave me an honest review there. All right, let's jump into episode three. Well, it's been said that the devil has never had an original idea in his life. Basically, what he sees God doing, he tries to imitate in order to deceive, He produces a counterfeit version of the real to lead people astray, and many times he's quite successful. According to Muslims, an angel named Gabriel strangled Muhammad during his sleep and then commanded him to recite the words of Scripture given to him from Allah. In his book, The Final Quest, Rick Joyner claims to have had a dream from God where he's told that in the end times, Christians will be fighting against other believers in a great Christian civil war within the church. He states that the Lord is now preparing a leadership that will be willing to fight a spiritual civil war. He predicts that those on his side, called the quote-unquote dreaded champions, will ultimately win this civil war, enabling a leadership group of prophet judges, like himself, to start governing the entire body of Christ. And Joyner predicts that his side will harm many of the Christians who disagree with him, even though Joyner's side had hoped to recruit these believers instead. And as far as the Day of the Lord is concerned, Joyner claims that this Christian civil war is the ultimate conflict the battle of the last days, and he believes that his side's eventual victory and success in removing all Christian opposition to his side's leadership of the church will be the day of the Lord. Joseph Smith has convinced countless Mormons that in 1820 he was visited by God the Father, known as Elohim, who informed him that all churches were deceived? He then claimed that in 1823 he, re- he received a visit from an angel named Moroni and was told about golden plates which were supposedly written in Reformed Egyptian. Smith boasted to have been blessed with the supernatural ability to translate the plates and eventually produce the Book of Mormon. Well, Second Chronicles 18.21 demonstrates that there are clearly lying spirits in the world. And these lying spirits are actively seeking to ravage the church and the world. But let's not make the same pendulum-swinging mistake that America's rationalistic forefathers did in downplaying or outright dismissing the supernatural. If evil spirits speak to people in order to persuade them to accept lies, and Satan is the ultimate counterfeiter, then the Holy Spirit is definitely going to be speaking to people to convince them to follow the truth. However, we must be sober-minded about this subject and always first turn to the best source in discerning the voice of God. The God breathed scriptures. Without question, we need to primarily use the scriptures as our authority in distinguishing truth from error. Now, that being said, these same God breathed scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit still speaks in various ways today. The scriptures demonstrate that God speaks to us through his creation, he speaks to us through his children, he will speak. Sometimes to us through angels, he will sometimes speak to us through dreams and visions, and he will sometimes speak to us through gentle promptings of the Holy Spirit. And when he speaks, the Holy Spirit will be leading us to repentance, reminding us of the faith once delivered for all uh, to the church. He'll be guiding us into the truth and glorifying Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage in the middle of the 3rd century. He was a man held in very high high regard in his day, and he was an eventual martyr for the gospel. He wrote about hearing from God here in 250 AD. He said, Be constant in both prayer and reading. Now speak with God, then let him speak with you. Let him instruct you in his teaching. Let him direct you. So yes, we need to be diligent and disciplined in our study of the scriptures. They will help us discern truth from error. And yes, we need to present our requests to God with thanksgiving and faith. But we also need to take time to listen. We need to believe that If we ask God questions, he will answer. He will guide us. He will speak in a manner that we can understand. So, how would you react if you sensed God's holy voice guiding you, but you didn't see anyone speaking to you? I want to tell you the story of the first time I sensed God speaking clearly to me. In an almost audible way. It's actually the inspiration behind the song that plays during the intro to the podcast. And at the end of the episode, I'll play that song in its entirety. So just before my junior year in high school, I gave my life to Jesus. I wasn't getting any discipleship, though. And soon I began playing in a band with my brother who was in his first year at Texas A&M University and we were playing in bars and um, not playing Christian stuff in in bars. Well, early one Friday afternoon, he drove down to Houston, Texas in his Chevy S10 Blazer to pick me up for an important gig we would be playing the next day in College Station, uh, Texas. Well, it was a long and crazy weekend. Finally, early Sunday afternoon, we started heading back to Houston. My brother was driving, and our drummer Wally rode shotgun, and I was in the back right seat. Now, you must understand that that little SUV was packed to the gills with sound equipment, instruments, and various stands. There was only room for me to sit in one of the back seats, and only one side had a working seat belt, so I chose the side where I could not buckle up because, well, you know, I thought I was cool like that. Now, just before we got on the highway, my brother said he needed to stop by a friend's house to grab something, so he pulled in front of the house. He said he would just be a minute And he and Wally went inside. And just then, there in the silence, I heard it, or I felt it, or I sensed it. I don't know. In something like a whisper, a voice clearly told me to move all the stuff in the left back seat over to the right side. And for me to buckle myself in the left back seat, basically, it called me to repent of my pride and humble myself. Now, that was weird. That was really weird. But at the same time, it also made a lot of sense. And there was nothing in the message that I heard that contradicted what I did know of the scriptures. So I moved all the equipment in the left back seat over to the right, and I buckled myself in the left seat. Now about 20 minutes later, we were several several miles down the highway, going about 80 miles per hour in the left-hand lane. Unbeknownst to us, the blazer, it began to drift off the left shoulder And onto the grass median, we were like looking at each other and changing a CD or something like that. Now I looked up and I realized that we were all about to hit this construction sign over past the the gravel shoulder and we were now into the grass basically. And I yelled, watch out. Now, the little blazer swerved hard to the right into a minivan carrying a newborn, and it began to flip. Our car did. We flipped over three times across the width of Highway 6 at 80 miles per hour. I remember flying around so fast, yet it was as if everything was happening in slow motion, which is the name of that intro track, Slow Motion. In a state of shock, we carefully climbed our way out of one of the side windows of the vehicle, and witnesses of the accident came running up to us, asking how we could be alive and if there was anyone still in the car. The blazer was a crumpled pile of garbage, And guitars and stands were strewn all across the highway. Yet, we were blessed to escape with only small cuts and like minor concussions. I believe that we were being protected through that crash. However, I also believe that if I had not listened to that still small voice, my life would have turned out much different, to say the least. Now, because the early Christians read the Bible so seriously and simply, they too believed that God still speaks. Not that God gave new revelation on par with that of Jesus and the apostles, but that God absolutely still does speak. The martyrdom of Polycarp. A work written about 135 A.D. displays this supernatural dynamic quite well. And I'm going to read a portion of that to you as translated by J.B. Lightfoot. Now, the martyrdom of Polycarp centers around uh, this mass persecution, horrific, horrific persecution breaking out around Smyrna where Polycarp was the bishop. And so, it says, when he heard about this, Polycarp was not in the least upset and was happy to stay in the city, but eventually he was persuaded to leave. He went to friends in the nearby country, where, as usual, he spent the whole time, day and night, in prayer for all the people and for the churches throughout the world, Three days before he was arrested, while he was praying, he had a vision of the pillow under his head in flames. And he said prophetically to those who were with him, I will be burned alive. Well, the police and the horsemen came at supper time on the Friday with their usual weapons as if coming out against a robber that evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. When he heard that they had come, he went down and he spoke with them. They were amazed at his age and his steadfastness. And some of them said, Why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? And immediately... Polycarp called for food and drink to be brought to them and he asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted and they agreed and so he stood and prayed so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. And when he had finished praying, they put him on a donkey and they took him to the city. Now as Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven and said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. I'm going to interrupt right there. This is not necessarily telling Polycarp to act manly. It's telling Polycarp to act like Jesus. Now, back to the story. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp, and upon hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, down with the atheists. The Romans called Christians atheists because they wouldn't worship their gods. It's just a side note. Okay, back again. But Polycarp Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitudes in the stadium and gesturing toward them, he said, down with the atheists. The proconsul said, reproach Christ and I will set you free. But Polycarp declared, for 86 years, I have served him and he has done no wrong to me. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? But the proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. So call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. The proconsul said, If you despise the animals... Then I will have you burned. And Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And when the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer garments, undid his belt, and tried to take off his sandals. But when they went to fix him with nails, he said, Hey, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle. I will be without the help of your nails. So they simply bound him with his hands behind him like a distinguished ram chosen from a great flock for sacrifice. And then the fire was lit and the flame blazed furiously. We, who were privileged to have witnessed it, saw a great miracle, and this is why we have been preserved to tell this story. The fire shaped itself into the form of an ark, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, and formed a circle around the barred, Around the body of the martyr. Eventually, when those wicked men saw that his body would not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. And when he did this, such a great quantity of blood flowed that the fire was extinguished. Now, did you notice? the role that intentional prayer played in paving the way for Polycarp to be ready to hear God speak and ready to faithfully follow those words? It's just amazing, wasn't it? Now, that was an individual experience. But let's think about how Christians can experience the voice of God in their corporate gatherings. So a couple of years ago, house church I was leading decided to have a service where the majority of time would be free for the Holy Spirit to move spontaneously. Now, this was a scary proposition, but it felt like the direction God was leading us. Admittedly, though, a part of me felt like I was being led like a lamb to slaughter. I could hear the possible complaints. You really believe God called you, our pastor, not to plan anything? Really? For an hour and a half? So basically, either God would move or things would turn south quickly. Well, the day before the service, my wife, Stephanie, began to experience excruciating back pain, like On a pain scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, she was an 8 to a 9. And I thought about praying for her that night, but then I got this sensation that uh, I needed to wait. And my decision to wait earned me a night in the doghouse. The next morning, though, after a brief devotional, um, as we gathered as a church, we spent time in groups seeking God's direction for the rest of the gathering. And after, afterwards, um, one of our elders suggested that we all come around two particular men and ask the Lord to help them be bolder in praying out loud. So we did. And after about 10 minutes or so of praying, we began to pray for other needs and other people. But we just kept on standing and praying together. It was It was awesome. And that went on for probably 30 to 45 minutes. And then I felt led to uh, let the group know about Stephanie's back issue, which she was trying to hide from everyone. You know, she's tough like her father in that way. So I called her forward. And then I asked the two men if they would pray out loud for God to heal Stephanie. I said they didn't need to pray in a complicated way, just five to ten seconds and very simply, but I did ask that they not pray for doctors to heal Stephanie, but just that Jesus would heal her. And they both prayed very simple, beautiful, compassionate prayers. And praise God, Stephanie's back pain immediately went from like an eight or a nine to a one. So like the first time we hear these guys pray out loud in a, you know, a Christian gathering, they see God do a miracle. And later that day, her back pain was completely gone. It went down to a zero, you know, praise God, praise God. So let me encourage you. God doesn't just want to use pastors to pray. In fact, I would venture to say God likes using non-pastors, non-leaders, more than pastors and leaders to do great things for his kingdom. But ultimately, God just wants to use anyone who is honestly and humbly making themselves available for him. So, after all those stories... Here's the question. Are we making ourselves available for God to speak? Are we giving God room to speak to us during our private devotions and throughout our days? Also, are we designing our church gatherings in a way that also give God room to speak to us? And if not, what are we afraid would happen If we did make the changes necessary to create such an environment, what do we believe people need more of? Our voices or God's voice? If we are willing to move away from comfort and routine, if we are willing to take risks and make ourselves available to Him, we will experience God and that is what we need. That is what changes lives. Our spiritual enemy, the devil, is deceiving billions of people and leading them astray. They need to hear God speak. They need to experience God. So, may you be strong and courageous And take the uncomfortable risks to make room for God to speak to you and through you. And as you do, may you see him move in incredible ways to bring changes and radical transformation to people's lives for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. God bless you. Bye. Welcome to episode three of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us. Today, I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Thanks so much for joining me today on Reclaiming the Faith. To give you the basic premise for the show, imagine sitting in a coffee house or on your front porch with some friends, just talking about current events or maybe even having a Bible study. Then imagine that an early Christian, like Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of the Apostle John, joined in on the conversation. How would he respond? What advice would he give? What kind of insight could he offer about how the Apostles approached those same core issues? What could he tell us about the way the Christians in his day face similar situations? Well, in episode three, I'm blessed to be joined by one of my best friends, Tyler Bryan, who has been in youth ministry for nearly a decade. We wanted to talk about youth ministry from an early Christian perspective, and particularly the role parents play in shaping their kids' spiritual development. And if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to visit my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, and you can email me there at email philsbaker at gmail.com. And finally... Last year, I wrote a book about this new journey that Jesus and the early Christians have taken me on. It's called New, Wineskins, and the Simple Words of Christ. You can purchase it on Amazon, and again, if it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there. Okay, no more intro stuff. Let's get episode three rolling. All right, so I'm sitting out here with my buddy Tyler Bryan, Hello. And hey, hey, buddy. We're looking out at uh, Lake Travis out here in Austin. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Dude, it's awesome. It is awesome. And uh, we've been having a great vacation. And Tyler is a youth minister
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, up in Pennsylvania in the Harrisburg area. Yep. And we got to know each other through youth ministry in uh, Sugarland, a little suburb of Houston. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, kind of hit it off. And. Um, So Tyler has a ton of experience with youth ministry, and uh, so we thought it would be really cool to talk about uh, how the early Christians approached youth ministry. Maybe in some kind of a way, right? <laughs> if, they, to... if
4: they had a youth ministry concept, right, we'll right. find it today.
1: So uh, before we do that, though, just to give you a little bit of introductions, Tyler, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to faith and like where you are now? I guess.
4: Yeah. So I um so I grew up here in Texas a little bit. Now I'm obviously in Pennsylvania. Um, but I grew up in Houston and um grew up in a Christian home and grew up going to church, going to Bible studies and mission trips, and it was a huge part of my life, but for all different reasons, and not really any of those reasons had to do with Jesus. Um, but it was a huge part of my life because that's where my friends were. Um, it was a huge part, of my, a huge part of my life because that's where like the fun was. It was like huge. It was a mega church. Um, They're doing great things, but it was still a mega church. So it was like where the excitement was. It's why I went, um, and I wound up not having a huge foundation of who Jesus was. Um, my family didn't, wholly, we didn't really talk about it a whole lot. Um, what we heard at church, we left at the doors on Sundays coming home. We didn't take it home with us, really. So, um, And we'll get to this, I'm sure, but I'm a big believer in that Like, parents of the household are the number one pastors in their kids' lives. They are the number one example of, of what it looks like to follow Jesus every day. And I, it's a pet peeve of mine when parents and, and people just in general like think of the church and youth ministries in general as like outsourcing faith because at the end of the day if we if we have your students or your kids for like you know an, an hour and a half a week and you have them for you know every night and every morning at home who's the real influencer so um I didn't have that at home a whole lot. I had loving parents. I had a great childhood and it was a whole lot of fun coming up here to Lake Travis all the time was a very fond memory of mine. But, um, because I didn't have a foundation and a lack of it, there's a lot of issues that hit you in middle school and high school. There's a lot of, um, that's when life gets a little deeper. Like when I was in third grade, it was a really bad day when I got a fruit roll up instead of a, you know, chocolate pudding pouch, like, right. But, I know it's not every kid's story. Some kids really are forced to grow up way faster than they should be. Um, but for me, life and friendships and relationships that ended and um, depression and suicidal thoughts happened in middle school and high school, and it really started to mess with me once, once puberty hit. And uh, in hindsight, looking back at this time in my life, I realized, like, God uses these experiences to sh- to shape how we impact the world and how we reach out to the world. Um, and so a huge part of what we do actually in Pennsylvania right now is like as we encourage our students to get involved and to serve is to actually ask them, like, what experiences do you have? So had you asked me that, I would have said, you know, depression or divorced parents or whatever it may be. And I found quickly that, like, my heart was growing and growing and growing for teenagers, Cause that's when I was lost and that's when I needed someone the most. And I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't even know that I needed it in the in the moment. This is all hindsight, right? Hindsight's a beautiful thing, but I, I didn't get that. And so I just want to spend my life until God calls me out of it, reaching out to those who I know just like me at that time are lost. And I found myself working in Austin and Chicago and Houston and not Pennsylvania, um, and then having met with some awesome people and working with some awesome people along the way, such as you and Adam, uh, who's in Sugarland, and um, you know Ian in Chicago was a huge influence on me. And uh, some great youth ministry friends in Pennsylvania get together and we kind of share ideas and pray for one another. But um, dude, it's all about for me, it's all about trying to reach out to an age group where like I felt lost. So yeah. That's great, man. Thanks
1: for sharing that. Yeah. So, like, um, what about the early Christians uh, dynamic with, with students uh, has really shaped the way that you approach youth ministry?
4: So, I know, like, the listeners, you know, won't understand all of this because we've talked about this before this conversation here. We've talked about this in in the car earlier. we talked about this on the phone as we keep in touch Um but there is, I feel like, and this isn't this isn't true of everybody, all right? This is a generalization that I'm making about a lot of parents of teenagers that I've worked with over my, you know, nine plus years doing youth ministry, and again, it's not every single one of them, but there is a basic foundational philosophical difference with how we approach the maturity level, and discipleship abilities of teenagers. And what I mean by that um, is, and this is rightfully so in a lot of ways, parents find that their primary role, maybe not primary, but a huge role for them to, to, to fulfill is to protect and to guard and to shield their children, which is a really good like, heart issue. It's a really good desire to have. And I'm realizing this now though, as like my son is, I mean, he's two, right? And I can't imagine when he's 12 or 13 or when I have, when we have more kids, what it's going to look like. But there's got to be a time where my son is not my two-year-old anymore. He is a man, maybe a small little young man, but he's a man. Or my daughter is a young woman, like she's a woman of God, and my son is a man of God. And I have to, while still in the household, release them to him. Where my job may no longer be of protection, but of discipleship, mentoring, and guiding. And I say that with hesitancy, because that's easier said than done, and I can't imagine a time where I don't look to, first and foremost, protect my child like I, my son's diabetic, right? There's not one thing I won't do to make sure he doesn't like live through the night and get through the lows and the highs of blood sugar. And there's not one thing I wouldn't do to protect him. But I say this all thinking about youth ministry in the teenage years as a real, as a chance for discipleship and growth. Um, so parents see largely see students and see youth as like, they're my kids. They're my babies. They're, you know, I can remember yesterday they were five years old, like I get it like that's really that's really like meaningful. I get that they're not five years old, you know they're not your babies anymore. they are young men and women who've got who God has created in his image with a unique combination of giftings and skills and personalities that he's calling for them to use in the world now um and you might get pushback on that. Like, well, our kids aren't ready, right? Our kids, they're still in school, they're still teenagers. Like, what do they know? Um, but inherently, there's something made in us that makes us ready. And I look at the disciples. Um, Jesus is going to the temple with his disciples, and only two of them pay the temple tax to enter. And it's Jesus and Peter. So Peter is like, what, at least. 18 i'm gonna go ahead It's got to be 20 20 okay to so, so i'm gonna go ahead and yeah. caveat to the audience that phil knows a whole lot more about like no, you crazy church history and first century judaism and culture than i ever will or do um i hope that throughout this conversation every time i'm wrong like i just was you'll correct me phil um but so we know that peter though like the point is he was the only one who was of age right yeah,
1: yeah. right he's married also only one that
4: yeah we yeah, see yeah. during the time that yeah. Jesus is traveling that he's married so we can assume and estimate then that the disciples arranged in age excluding peter so the rest of the 11 were we think john i've heard like i've heard different things but 13 seems to be a standard age thrown out there for for john 15 and 16 uh, but we know that they're not like adults they're not like fully seen as societal Contributing adults because of that story. That's exactly what we're dealing with in youth ministry. We're dealing with 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, all the way up, all the way from sixth grade to twelfth grade, depending on what youth ministry you're setting you are. Sometimes it's seventh grade, right? Sometimes you have fifth grade thrown in there. But there's like a, a general like preteen, teenage setting. And so the basic foundational philosophical difference that myself and some parents have is that I don't see their kids and their children and their teenagers as young guys and girls who need to be, like, shielded away and shied away from the realities of this world and the realities of the faith and the realities of the cost of following Jesus. Instead, I see them as disciples because they're the same age of John. Um, and I know that we're probably going to get to it, but you have a really cool, like, insight onto who John is, just because your story from, like, Peter and John being in the, in the going to the temple, right, like, um, together um, from the Sanhedrin. So there's there's something, too, like, youth that we shouldn't shy away from, but we should really capitalize on because of their passion, their exuberance for life, their excitement over the smallest things, like... Adults have a hard time getting excited about, you know, what excites teens. And it's a tool that I feel is in our arsenal as youth pastors and parents to really mentor and disciple teenagers um, to be disciples and to be the church, not just to be, like, shielded away and, like, protected from, like, oh, they have different worldviews or, hey, that's, like, you know, there's some really bad stuff in the news. Like, don't let them watch it. Like, that's not my view of youth ministry. Yeah, that's good, man.
1: It's making me really think and uh, about this this quote from uh, Clement of Rome in 95. He says, Let your children be partakers of true Christian training. Let them learn, a, learn of how great a veil humility is with God, how much the spirit of pure affection can prevail with Him. Hmm. How excellent and great his fear is and how it saves all those who walk in it with a pure mind. and so it's really neat that first line especially let your children yeah. be partakers of true Christian training like don't yeah. hold them back. yeah So what, what like are there any thoughts that you that you take from that?
4: I love kids ministries. We have a great one you know in Pennsylvania. Um, I love what they do. And I've never been a children's pastor. I've never really worked at even a VBS. So my knowledge and expertise with children is, like, minimal, right? It's very little. So I say this, you know, and take with a grain of salt, as you will, but throughout Scripture, and I say throughout, like, you know, a few times throughout the Scripture in the Old Testament specifically, you were instructed to, like, guide our kids in our, in the way that we were brought up and pass down the traditions and to tell those stories and to lead them right um but there's there's a point in time where that we realize is simply head knowledge that's just we're teaching them stories and we're teaching them this is who jesus is on paper like we're give, giving you a lesson on paper like this is who jesus is which is good and it's biblical and i wouldn't ever take that back But there's a point, and as C.S. Lewis describes it, um, like the longest distance you'll ever travel is from your head to your heart. There's a point where what you learn becomes who you are. There's a point as like what you learn and what you know becomes like how you see and how you reach out to the world around you. Like for, you know, first through fifth grade, I've always learned that like, oh yeah, Jesus is near to those who hurt. And, you know, it's just common phrases that we may hear. Well, now, as we're entering, like, you know, a little bit more maturity and a little bit more depth, here's your chance to actually be like Jesus and to reach out to someone who is in pain and who hurts. Here's your chance to not just know it, but to live it out. Um, and that's, so I love that quote, like, true, like, true Christian teachings and, like, have them, like, really experience it. Like, yeah, yeah like, don't, they're not kids anymore they're not quite adults in today's standards, but they're not kids anymore and they can handle much more than we give them credit for. And I think of the early church from just talking with you and hearing your heart for the early church and hearing stories about youth in the early church like it, they understood that and somewhere along the line, we've missed that. Um, And I would love personally to get that back.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Like I want to think about like too, you know,
1: what is it that, maybe is keeping us as parents from, from really letting our children partake of that true Christian training, like letting them experience that risk maybe and that rejection and maybe some danger. You know, what is it that's keeping us from that? Because I, I, remember, I remember a story uh, from a, a youth pastor friend of, of mine that, uh, you know, he, he was taking out one of his students that was really on fire for God really on fire for christ and uh they they wanted to go the student wanted to go evangelize let's let's go to a mall let's let's talk to people about about christ and the youth pastor was like yeah let's do it and so they started going every weekend to the mall talking to strangers about jesus and after several weeks of doing this the students parents who were like leaders in the church told the youth pastor to stop this because the student was not—he was pursuing an, uh, a direction, a road that was not going to lead him to be well-rounded. Hmm. Right.
4: That's a really interesting like phrase, well-rounded. There. Not in his faith, just yeah. as a human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Like, so. So for me, like. So like it's He's a, spending
1: too much time in his faith.
4: Yeah. Right. Yeah, which seems absurd right it seems like how can you spend too much time in your faith like for a lot of us we don't spend enough time in our faith actually you can pull most evangelical pastors who will tell you that their personal time in the bible is only when they're like preparing sermons like that's not personal growth that's not you connecting with god that's you preparing to pour yourself out so like can you really ever pour yourself too much or too far into this faith? But, so we were talking earlier about this, and I have not had a change of heart a little bit at all. But I have, like, a perspective. You know, like, so, again, I bring this up. Um, So my son's, he's he's type 1 diabetic and has been, you know, since before he was 2. So he will always, like, stand out a little bit he'll always be the kid until he gets like maybe an artificial pancreas which this is not a, like a medical like podcast so we're not going to get into that but he'll always be the kid who can't have cake at parties or who like hey before we go swimming in a hot tub or with friends or whatever like I need to check my blood sugar like he he will always be singled out right i want him to be accepted and to fit in and i the desire that that these 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 people these parents in this story I think it comes from a good place. Like, I want my my kid to be accepted and to be, like, not looked at as weird, to not be looked at as, like, he's a zealot, right? Or he's, like, like hyper-Christian, or I don't, like, you know, just whatever it is. Like, you know, I'm not going to throw this word out easily or lightly, but, like, he's fundamentalist. Like, he right. does, he actually does all this stuff. And I know there's, like, a whole loaded word. I don't mean it in a political or, like, theological sense. But um, I think the parents here have a really inherently good desire to have their kid be accepted and to be liked and to fit in. Because I have that same. Um, And when I was a teenager, I wasn't serious about faith at all. Had I had a friend who was going to malls, asking people about Jesus, offering prayer, and being that open and that bold with their faith and that courageous with their faith, I might like laugh or just stop talking to them. You know, like that's, that's who I was in high schools. And I know that I wouldn't want that for my son, but there's a, but like a huge, like big old, like comma before we go on here, that's not up to parents to choose that for their specifically teenage kids. Um, there, there's a time like we just, I just said this was, where your kid is no longer a kid and can make his or her own destiny. Um, they can start following their own path. They can start really leaning in into how God has made them to be. Um, and if my son wants to go to a mall and be laughed at and pray for people in the name of Jesus, I'll let him. If he wants to shy away from that. If he's too scared to do it, I will let the Holy Spirit do His work in his life, and I'll let that kind of unfold, right? But the end point I want to make on this story is the same. Like, it's, and maybe this isn't the answer you're looking for. I'm not looking for
1: it.
4: But the parents, at some point, need to trust that God has their best son or daughters like at heart. Like He has their best plans, their best. Um, his best intentions, their best, whatever, use of their gifts, whatever it is, like he has their best at heart. Um, yeah, I, I, it's hard because I, I understand where the parents are coming from, but we need our teenagers to be the lights in the church. Like legally in Texas, at least as far as I knew and was told by people, I couldn't go on to a school campus if I wasn't an emergency contact. Like for lunch, I couldn't go. I can go for, like, see you at the pool. I can go for, like, you know, sports events and stuff. But, like, during lunch or whatever the case may be, like, during school hours, I was not allowed on site without being an emergency contact as far as I was told and led to believe. So, if adults can't reach schools and they're cracking down on teachers praying, I mean, you know, like, you know the whole... We can't share our faith openly as much as we had maybe in the past. So... If adults and, like, pastors of churches aren't reaching schools, then who is? Teenagers. But more than that, it's not a last resort. Because that the way I said that makes it sound like, well, if we can't, then you guys can. It's a, no, 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 no. You were always supposed to be doing this. This was always your task. This was always, like, your mission. Like, right now, you can't just give up everything and move to Africa and be a missionary and plant churches. You can't just give up everything in like, you know,
1: material wise. Yeah, yeah, saying. yeah.
4: Like you don't, you don't have that ease of road to go do that or the the means to do that. But you can be Jesus every single day in the halls of your school and in the huddles on your sports teams and in the um, rehearsals of your plays. You can be Jesus, and that's that's what we're missing. Is there's a missional aspect to being a teenager that I don't know if it's ignored or pushed aside, but parents don't naturally. um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Parents don't naturally like encourage that, I guess, in their youth. So let me run something by you. Yeah. yeah. Just see what you think about this. So love it. I'm I'm (laughs)
1: just kidding. I have no idea. Thank you. Yep. (laughs) Just because it's Phil. Yeah. Phil Nye. So... Like things that are virtuous okay. in today's culture. Today's Christian culture would be something like our kids being well-rounded. That's considered virtuous. Like, yeah. We want our kids to be well, well-rounded because that looks good on college essays or college yeah. uh, entrance essays. Right. Yeah. It's good to be well-rounded. It's good to be well-liked. It's Mm -hmm. good to be accepted. It's virtuous to be well liked. It's virtuous to be accepted. It's virtuous to be popular. It's see these virtues. Yeah. Right. Of course. To not be weird is virtuous. Ah. Right.
4: Yes. These kinds of w word weird. Right, right,
1: right. So it's interesting. There's this guy named Lactantius, who was uh, writing during the last great persecution, the Valerian persecution. This is around 304 C.E. Okay, and this is just horrific persecutions. I'm going to get to this word virtue toward the end of the quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but hang with me, because he's describing the stuff that's going on and what was going on with Christian youths, all right? Mm -hmm. So he says, People see, people, non-Christians, see that Christian men are lacerated by various kinds of tortures. Yet those men retain their patience unsubdued while the executioners are wearied, right? So the Christians are, like, hanging with it, and the executioners are getting tired, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's a weird thought to have. Yeah. Seeing this, the crowd realizes that endurance alone could not have overcome such great tortures without the aid of God. So God's helping them. After all, robbers and men of robust frame are unable to endure lacerations of this kind, Right. But in our case, boys and delicate women in silence overpower their torturers. Not that they're like breaking their way out. Yeah. It's just they're overpowering them by their like like a sheep, he was led to the, the slaughter, you know, without yeah. uttering a word kind of thing. All right. So even the fire is unable to extort a groan from them, these, these boys. They endure because they put their trust in God. To choose to be tortured and slain rather than to take incense in three fingers and throw it upon the fire appears to the pagans as foolish. That's what they would do when they walk into the Agora, right? Take some incense, throw it to Caesar. Mm-hmm. It's a way of saying you 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 worship Caesar, basically. You, you recognize him as a deity. Now, it is a virtue to despise death this is for a Christian. It's a virtue to despise death. It is not that we seek death. Or of our own accord to inflict it upon ourselves, which is a wicked and impious thing. Rather, if we are compelled to desert God and betray our faith, we would prefer to undergo death. So if they're being, you know, saying, deny Christ or you're going to die, they're like, okay, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: no problem. I'll die. Yeah. Now, these are boys he's talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. Thus, with lofty and invincible minds, we trample upon those things that others fear, pain and death. And this is virtue. This is true constancy, to be steadfast and unmoving in this one thing alone, that no terror nor any violence can turn us away from God. So that's the quote. Like, this is virtue. No terror, no violence can turn us away from God we are unmoving we're steadfast in this so it's pretty interesting this this idea of virtue yeah. right that's not that's not preached to today's to today's men you know men in church or women in church and mm-hmm. certainly not to youth you know to really like it's the sermon on the mount it's the beatitudes you are blessed when you're persecuted yeah consider yourself blessed consider yourself blessed when you're excluded when you're insulted when people say all kinds of evil and wicked things about you for my name's sake, you're blessed. Your reward is great in heaven. You know, the kingdom yeah. is with you now. That kind of stuff is not really preached as virtuous. Yeah.
4: So you just you just said something like, you are blessed when you're persecuted. You have you have all these you have these treasures and riches and rewards in heaven, right? Mm. I think that that is the key. Mm-hmm. That is so far removed from today's culture I was, while you're reading that quote I'm thinking like honestly thinking like oh my gosh like I think if I ever read that quote and like a talk on like first century virtues you know it's my middle school group I might not have one at all come back the next week that's it's heavy and it's really dark and it's really like gory and gruesome but more than that it's the word running through my mind was like, this is just not like at all relatable to today's teenagers. I guess we live in a whole different time. We live in a different like culture and we live in a nation where it's free to practice your, know, your religion Your your, your quote was just like so not relatable until you started describing it. And I think for me, as I hear that, like, there's, there's such a, and I'm f- having like a hard time finding the right words. Cause this is a really delicate, like sure. issue talking about kids, you know, teenagers and youth dying for their faith. There is a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost. It's, it may not be the same as it is today, as it is, as it was like, you know, back then, um, but there's a cost to following Jesus and there's something that we give up. And there's there are things that we a give up, like our life sometimes, you know, or things about ourselves or certain friend groups or whatever the case may be, but there are things that we give up and that's that's not told all the way. I don't think that's fleshed out all the way in today's Christian culture, mainstream Christian culture. Um this talk of you have on one hand the things of the world and on the other hand, the thing that, the things that God has for you, you can't just willingly have both. Like they don't, they don't mix. And first John talks about light and dark in the, in these terms. Like you don't have lightness, light, light and darkness together. You don't have the things of the world, sin and mistakes. And when I say sin, I mean, habitual sin. I mean like, yeah, I mean like, I'm following Jesus, and I make a, like, you know, I make a mistake, I sin. I'm still clearly following Jesus, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about either ignorant or unrepentant or just habitual. I keep coming back to the same stuff. Um, it costs us this, and it may not be the same cost as it was back then. But I think this whole idea of like you can't have what the world has, and also at the same time what God has for you. That's not talked about a whole lot. We try to a little bit where we are here in in Pennsylvania. We try to hit that a little bit. Um, But even then it's like uncomfortable. It's even then like, oh, like this, this requires something of me, you know? So for instance, very small, very, very, very small, like, uh, example. We have a group of seventh and eighth graders who, um, act as our like middle school Wednesday night like f- almost like a first impressions team like a lot of churches have you know on Sunday mornings um, with their like adult church big, I still call it big church because you know I'm a youth pastor and so everything's like big church um, but these students willingly give up their first like 10 15 minutes of our like youth you know of our youth group on Wednesday nights is like fellowship hangout there's games, there's video games there's you know basketball there's all this stuff going on. They give up that time to go and see students standing on the walls by themselves, or a new student who may be talking with others, but just go introduce themselves to a new student. Or, like, they give up that time to be with their friends and hanging out to live missionally. And then we're trying to teach slowly in really small steps what it looks like to, like, this is a small cost of following Jesus. You give up something, you sacrifice something to see His kingdom furthered on this on this earth, that's what it's all about—not sacrifice. But it's all about seeing His kingdom furthered on this earth. Um, so while while I I would say like the the topic is probably unrelatable, the example may be unrelatable. The topic needs to be addressed. There's a cost to this all, you know, and there's but the cost comes with looking at and recognizing that teenagers aren't kids anymore. They are, they're ready for some meat. They're ready for some discipleship. They're ready for some depth.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting how kids can change cultures. Yes. Yes. Kids being willing to sacrifice and put fear aside has such a huge impact on adults. You know, we yes. were talking earlier about what really changed the civil rights movement in, in America is in Birmingham. When the pastors in Birmingham got together with Martin Luther King and, and they're like, "Look, our kids are ready. They're willing to put our, themselves on the line." And so around 3,000 young men and women, students, high school, middle school students, got together and they're like, "You know, Bull Connor, you know the main, the main, you know police guy, basically, you can you can sic your dogs on us and we're not going to stop." And he did, and that got. national media coverage the united states saw it and that's what turned the hearts of the country when the middle school and high school students were like you can put the dogs on us but we're going to take a stand for the kingdom of god really Mm -hmm. you know for injustice yeah and i mean that's real that's 50 years ago 60 years ago Mm
4: -hmm.
1: in our country and we see a lot of you know racial injustice going on today. Yeah. You see a lot of crazy yeah. stuff going on today, and you know our kids are going to be living in some perilous times, mm-hmm. probably. And so you know the more we can get them in situations where they're where they're on mission, living on mission, and taking risks, and putting their fear aside, choosing courage, choosing yeah. love, love of neighbor over insecurity, choosing love of neighbor over fear of being embarrassed you know Mm -hmm. yeah love of neighbor continuing to do that love of neighbor action that's risk that's you know requiring self-sacrifice all this kind of stuff whether it's literal or small the more we can have those object lessons built in starting at home first like you were talking about mom and dad like is it scary to go talk with a homeless person sit down with them you're going to look foolish if you sit down with them and eat a meal with them you know and pray with them that might be risky for them yeah. That might look foolish, whatever. But I was like just going taking... to ask
4: you, like, so what does this look like? How do we get to this point where we... It's little steps like that, yeah. though, right? Where yeah. you're willing to, you know, sacrifice your
1: pride. Like, you know, Jesus is constantly asking people to give things up, right? He goes to the rich young ruler, and he's like, leave everything behind. But then he comes to Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus has nothing. He's completely broke. And yet, Bartimaeus is like, please have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He just keeps on walking. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps on walking he knows he can hear bartimaeus but why did he keep on walking so bartimaeus screams louder and louder this is all luke 19 if i'm remembering it correctly maybe it's luke 20 i can't remember I'll Take like your word but for it yeah somewhere around in there but uh maybe it's luke 18 some yeah all right man so uh anyway so he just screams louder and louder it's like he's losing his voice you know, why would Jesus make Bartimaeus basically lose his voice before Jesus stops and turns around and say what can I do for you why would he make him go to that extreme a it's a like blind one of, man
4: yeah it's like one of those things like how far like how much like do you really want like how you know, how far are you willing to go kind of thing yeah what well, what what did Bartimaeus have to
1: lose the the rich young ruler had a lot of monetary stuff to lose
4: yeah
1: what did Bartimaeus have to lose everybody's got something to lose So I could be wrong, but looking at it, everybody's got a sense of at least a shred of self-respect and dignity. And Bartimaeus was willing to look like a fool to get that, to get his miracle, you know? But he had to give it up. Jesus Mm is going to keep on walking, you know? And so, like, maybe that's something that Jesus is calling us as parents to do, to be willing to lose our dignity For him, we look foolish. But if we can model that for our kids, I mean, that's huge in middle school and high school. Huge, yeah. So if we can model that with them in doing object lessons in different ways, I mean, I think that'll really help us. Because, you know, there is going to come a time, there could come a time, there could come a time where we are asked to deny Christ. Mm -hmm. And so what are we going to do then? Well, really, what we're going to do then is based on what we've been doing throughout our lives. Like we, you, you, played soccer yeah. and the reason, I mean, I'm sure you did tons of drills over and over and over, yeah. Yeah. you know, why do you do that after you've been playing soccer for 16, 17 years? So in the game, it's like second nature. Exactly. You do what you've practiced. And if we've practiced shrinking back when a gun's to our head or a knife's to our throat, we're going to do what we've practiced because that's second nature. Cowardice is second nature or courage is second nature. Which one is it going to be? Well, what are we practicing? And the more live action drills you can do in practice, the better, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I mean, that's just kind of different thoughts I've been having, you know. How can I do more live action drills?
4: Yeah. So. Yeah. This. This is kind of like I feel like you know I don't know how much time we have left. I feel like this yeah. is a really good conclusion point. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it home. Um. So as you know, as a good, it's a good pass you. Always want to end. With how do I live this out? How do I take your one like nugget of truth? Yeah. How can I put it into practice today? Right. Um, and, this, and this is actually for parents from my perspective. Like maybe there's some teenagers listening to this. I have no idea. But if you're a parent or you're an adult, like Phil just asked a really good question. Um, how, what baby steps do I take to model this for my kids or my, my children, like young children or middle school or high school students? You don't need the church to plan service projects. You don't need the church to program discipleship. You don't need the church to program these things. You are the church. We are the church together. A family like can give up a part of their Thanksgiving to go to a nearby you know, food pantry or a soup kitchen and serve. A family can go to a local park, pick up trash in the local park, and hand out water bottles on a really hot day. Like, families can see what's going on in the news, you know, like, during commercial breaks, or if you're watching, like, on whatever, you can pause it, and you can talk about, through the image of God, how he sees people, how he sees races and religions, and how he sees um, all his children, you know? Like, there, there are very teachable moments in all this, and you don't need the church to put a service project together for you to come do, you can do it on your own. And that actually will speak volumes like more than the church programming is families getting together sometimes with other families. So that you know, students are not alone doing it, but like go love your communities together, love your backyards together, love your neighbors together. um, And your students will like, that will change them. Dude, that's awesome yeah thanks so much that's, for taking time man Tyler I, I really yeah. appreciate it dude this is great I think it's gonna bless a lot of people anything Phil anything for you man love you <laughs> good. love you too buddy <laughs> alright well that's gonna wrap it up
2: Staring back at me, every street is stained with tears. Greed and justice, apathy. The mirror makes me see a land of slavery and fear. Now I choose to believe in your good news, and no hurricane can tear me away from your love. I choose to believe in your good news The good work that you've begun No, it won't be undone Lord, I hear you calling now Follow, seek and save that which is lost Not to be served but to serve Along this hard road For your fame carry my cross Now I choose to believe in your good news Then no hurricane can tear me away from your love I choose to believe in your good news The good work that you've begun No, it won't be undone It's your blood It's powerful and mighty Yes, your blood It will break the chains that bind me Yes, your blood It's all the evidence that I need Reminds me of your mercy when bad news is all that I see. I choose to believe in your good news the good work that you've begun no it won't be undone cause one day one day no more sorrow no more shame every tear will be wiped away in Jesus name one day one day no more suffering and no more pain. The curse is broken in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. One day, one day, one day.